The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Last week, Daniel Sukup started us off on Noah's flood. Today, we're looking at the second part of the flood narrative, where the flood actually happens. This is sometimes thought of a story that's for kids, but we're going to realize together that while kids do need to understand this story, and kids are smart enough to understand this story too, this is very much a story that adults need to hear. So here's an outline of where we're headed. First, we're going to read the story again nice and slow, and we're going to see what we can learn from the way that Moses wrote it. Second, there's a couple of things we need to feel so that this story can work on us the way it's supposed to. Here's a preview of the feelings that we're going to go through. The first feeling is we're going to see how really terrible the flood was. We need to feel how dreadful God's judgment is. But next, and actually before I tell you what's next, I'm going to be honest up front. I'm going to set a trap for us here, kind of like the trap that Nathan set for David when he went to correct him. Do you remember that story? Nathan tells a story to David about a poor man who loved a lamb. And the story made David angry, but it was actually about him. In that same way, we're going to look at this situation together, at the ugliness and the evil of sin. And we're going to feel some righteous indignation. That means we're going to be angry, but for the right reason. As terrible and dreadful as God's judgment is, it's also deeply deserved. And we're going to feel that together. But the last feeling is, just like Nathan and David, that feeling of righteous anger, it's going to trick us if you come with me and really feel it. Just like David, we're going to realize our own sin, and we're going to lament over it, and we're going to ask, is there any answer to our sin? So I'm asking for your trust to come with me on a heavy emotional journey together on purpose, Because even though it's going to start out dark, and then it's going to get hot, and then it'll get very bleak, I think this is going to end somewhere that's really good for our souls. By the end, we're going to look to Jesus as the most important part, as the only way that all of God's promises come true. So even though I'm setting a trap for you, when we get to each part of the story, please don't hold back. Sound good? All right. Now, I can talk about a big game about where we're going, but I do not actually have the power to make any of that journey happen the way I just described it for you. If any part of that is going to actually happen, especially the part where we see Jesus together, we need God's Holy Spirit to be here making that happen. So I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to pray a potentially risky prayer. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit, who is here in this room, who can hear the conversation that we're having right now, I'm going to ask him to be with us and to do whatever he wants with us and to us. And we're going to trust that he'll do exactly that because he always does. All right? So you ready for this? Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, you are here. There is nowhere that you are absent from. 
There's nothing your ear does not hear and nothing your eye does not see. Every heart here is bare before you. So I ask you, dear one, to come. Have your way with your people and everyone who hears this word. We love you, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, we're going to start by reading the chapter again nice and slow to let the details work themselves out of this text. So you're going to want your Bible open for this. We're in Genesis chapter 6, or chapter 6, 7, sorry. Genesis chapter 7 starts. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Now, as we heard from Daniel last week, Noah really was righteous. Now, was Noah a son of Adam? Yes, Noah was a descendant of Adam. So could Noah be free from sin? No, every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve sins because sin gets into and corrupts their very nature. By the way, is anybody else in here a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve? Oh, most of us. Okay. Uh, That's interesting. That'll come back later, but don't worry about it. Let's keep reading in verse 2. God says to Noah, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Now here we find something very interesting. God tells Noah to take more of the clean animals than the unclean animals. But he doesn't actually explain to Noah what clean and unclean are. So this is a really important idea later in Moses' five books. In the Old Testament, clean basically means good for dedicating to God. And unclean, which is also a thing, means not good for dedicating to God or not ready for that right now. So why exactly does God tell Noah to take seven pairs of the clean animals? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, but we can get a pretty good idea by just reading the story forward and seeing what Noah does with them. So looking ahead a few chapters, when Noah and his family land on Mount Ararat, Noah makes an altar and offers some of the clean animals to God as a sacrifice, and that's pleasing to God. So it's safe to say God told Noah to take extra clean animals so that he would have the extras to sacrifice with. Otherwise, if there were only two of the animals and you sacrificed them, you'd lose that kind of clean animal forever. So God prepared for Noah to be able to make sacrifices after the flood. It's because Noah was going to be safe. So, okay, God is telling Noah to get his family in the ark, and he's telling him what kind of animals he needs to take. Next, God tells him why he's telling him this. You can tell that's what's happening because the sentence starts with four. A sentence that starts with four gives you the why for some other sentence. Okay, so God says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I've made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So just like he told Noah in the last chapter, God is now promising again that everything alive on earth is going to perish. So what does Noah do? 
Well, he does the same thing that he did last time, right? Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. That is to say, Noah was obedient. Obedient is a really good thing to be, especially when the end of the world is coming. Let's keep reading. We're in verse 6 now. Now, Noah was 600 years when the floodwaters came on the earth, 600 years old, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. So here, Moses is telling us again that Noah obeys God. So many people in the Bible don't obey God, and that is not good. But Noah obeys God. So in verse 9 is where we are now. And after seven days, oh, let's see, do I have my, do I have my numbers wrong? Verse 10, excuse me. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Did you realize that Noah and his family got into the ark a whole week before the rain even started? It says it's after seven days that the flood comes. But then, after those seven days, the waters of the flood did come upon the earth. So, question for you. What if Noah and his family had gotten into the ark and seven days later, nothing happened? Well, that couldn't possibly happen. Why not? Well, because just a second ago, God said, in seven days, I will send rain on the earth. You see that? That's in verse 4. So for the rain not to come, God would have to break his word. God never breaks his word. Now in verse 11, here's where we see something interesting start to happen. Starting in 11, the details start to repeat on us. Check it out. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, but he already told us it was in the 600th year just a second ago, right? We've already heard this. All the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now that's way more colorful, but it basically just means the flood began. But Moses already showed us that happening too back in verse 10. So he keeps going like this. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. And also the animals go in in the next few verses. We've heard that already too. So why is Moses duplicating all of these details? Well, I think there's two reasons. One reason is, in Hebrew, when you want to show something that is important, you just say it again a second time, or sometimes a third time. Let's call this the say-it-twice effect. Last week, Daniel showed us a say-it-three-times effect, right? That's just what you use in Hebrew for things that are really, really important. Well, that idea, the say-it-twice effect, is what's happening here. The repeated information shows us how important this story is. But there's something else to notice here, too. This often happens in stories that have the say-it-twice effect. The second time tells us just a little bit more than the first time did. It doesn't just say that Noah was 600. It says the exact month and day that the flood started. The first time it just says the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And the second time it's this crashing, dramatic, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened, right? 
The first time, it tells us that Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife entered the ark. The second time, it gives us their names too, at least the names of his sons. It's the same with the animals. The second time goes into more detail. So the way this story is written has this interesting literary effect. It slows everything down because we're using more and more words, but the story itself is moving forward in super slow motion. We watch it happen from one angle, and then Moses backs us up, and we watch it again happen from another angle. He's setting us up to really pay attention to how this story unfolds, and also to really notice it when there's a new detail that we've never seen before. So let's keep going in verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. This is repeating verse 9. But can you feel it starting to build up to some new information we haven't heard before? Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded them. This is also a repeat of verse 9. And in a way, it's even repeating the verse right before it. But something new is coming. Then we read, and the Lord shut him in. Ooh, does that give you goosebumps just a little bit? The story moves into new territory right at the moment that there's an important detail. This detail matters because it means that even though Noah obeyed and he built the ark the way God told him to, Noah did not save himself. God saved Noah and his family and all the animals that were in there with him. So from this point on, the flood really gets going. I mean, it had a pretty spectacular start a few verses back, all the fountains of the great deep and the windows of the heavens opening, but that was just the beginning. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Do you see how we're still getting the say-it-twice effect in this section? The waters kept coming, and they increased, and then in the next verse, they rose, and they increased greatly. Do you think maybe we're building up to something again? Let's find out. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. The waters rose, and the high mountains were covered. And then the next verse, they rose and they covered the mountains. So he's saying these things twice again. So what is Moses getting us ready for? Well, look carefully at these next three verses, starting in verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. So we've been seeing the say it twice effect, right? Well, this is a say it twice Twice, all flesh died, and then everything on the dry land with the, with the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing, and then they were blotted out. Moses says the same thing four times in a row. This is the climax of the chapter. God keeps the promise that he made to Noah, which is that everything outside the ark would die. There's one glimpse of hope right here at the end of this chapter. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So God has been faithful. Noah and his family are safe. But then this final phrase, 
and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And that's the end of our chapter and the end of our text for today. All the things that God had made die, and then the flood just stays for a really long time. So we've read this text real slow and real careful. Now a question. How should we feel about this? Well, it's clear from the way that Moses is writing this story that it's a really significant episode in Genesis' story so far. The flood affects the whole entire world. And it's cataclysmic. This is not a story of everyone mostly going about their business. The world ends. It's also the final crashing point of a downward trend that started a while ago. When Adam and Eve sinned, they and especially their children started sliding downhill. Not literally, that's a metaphor to talk about them getting more and more evil further and further away from God. But also, it is actually literal. Eden was on top of a mountain, and as humans have gotten further and further away from God, they've also gone physically downhill. The flood is the lowest and the bleakest part that we've seen since creation was finished. In the flood, humanity hits rock bottom. So how ought we feel about this? If we're being honest, this story is full of dread and terror. God's judgment is terrifying. So we should feel that dread and terror, not hide from it, because that's what this story is asking from us. What makes this especially awful is if we remember creation before God made everything, back in Genesis 1. The very beginning of the story says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? So void means nothing lives there, and without form means nothing's able to live there. That's exactly what happens in the flood. For months, it's a return back to an empty and inhospitable and unformed world. In the flood, on the seventh day after Noah and his family enter the ark, God uncreates what he had originally taken seven days to make. He plunges the whole world back into the chaos waters that it originally came out of. God's judgment is, in one word, scary. But it's not like this judgment was random, right? There was a reason for it, wasn't there? Moses tells us really plainly why this judgment needed to happen. Do you remember the very beginning of Genesis, when we just soaked in the goodness of God on full display in his very good creation? God made a perfect world, and then in that perfect world, he put a perfect garden where Adam and Eve could live and work and have everything that they needed. And they were at peace with one another, and they ruled over all the animals and the fish and the birds and all creation that God had made. And most importantly of all, God gave humans himself. Eden was the place where God and man could walk together and enjoy one another. And with God, there is so, so much to enjoy. But humanity sinned. And when they did that, they threw away the peace and the happiness with God, 
and with one another that God had given them. They threw away the good work that he gave them to do. They decided, no, we're going to be the kings instead of God. And the result? God's good creation was ruined. Last week we read, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Humans took God's perfect very good world, and they corrupted it. And they didn't just corrupt creation. They completely corrupted themselves. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When you hear that, doesn't it make you frustrated? Why would humans do this? It doesn't make any sense. God's creation was so good. They were made without any sin, and no one died ever. And the very best part was they got to live with God. Think about that. But then they threw it away. God, who is powerful and wise and very, very good, they rejected him. How could they do that? Actually, how dare they do that? No one in all the universe deserves more love and true obedience and faithful covenant loyalty than God deserves. No one in all the universe is more beautiful, more valuable, a greater treasure than God is. And that's the God that they sin so heinously against by ruining everything that he made. The greater the treasure, the more evil it is to throw that away. That's why God sent such a terrible judgment. It's because humanity deserved it. What makes the sin of humankind so heinous is actually not the sins themselves. As bad as they are, and they're bad, sin is heinous most of all because of the holiness of the God that sin rebels against. But wait a second. I'm a son of Adam, too. I've chosen sin instead of obeying God, too. If what made the sin of those people, maybe millions of them, so black and so horrible was mostly who they sinned against, if that's what made them deserve a judgment as terrible as creation being uncreated, then that's what my sin deserves too. Every one of us has sinned against this same God. This God This holy and beautiful and creative and life-giving and garden-planting and breath-of-life-breathing and this justly judging, flood-sending, creation-uncreating God. Every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve, every one of us, have sinned. If they deserved a judgment as bad as this flood, we deserve a judgment that bad too. So if that's true, what can we do 
What hope do we have? Is everything lost? Before we despair, there is good news in this story for us. There were sinners in this story that God did not destroy. God told Noah to take extra clean animals with him, didn't he? And what were those clean animals for? Do you remember? They were for sacrifice. God planned ahead of time that Noah and his family would have what they needed to fellowship again with God. That all by itself is a sign of hope. But we need more comfort than that. Sin is a huge problem, and we need to know if there's a real answer to it. Do you feel that? To turn this little spark of hope into more than a glimmer, we need to ask and answer a very important question. Why did God save Noah and his family? Is it because God needed them? Or was it because God had to save them? No. God does not need any of us. And nobody can make God do anything that he doesn't want to do. Well, is it because Noah and his family deserved to be saved? No. Noah was a son of Adam, just like me. His wife was a daughter of Eve, just like many of you. Noah and his family deserved God's judgment, too. But wait a second. Didn't God save Noah because Noah was righteous? Well, actually, I think it's the other way around. Noah was righteous because God chose to save him. The book of Hebrews explains that Noah was righteous because of faith. Faith is always a gift. Noah did not earn or deserve God's goodness to him. He deserved the same thing that Adam and Eve did and that we all do, which is totally death. So then why did God save Noah? God saved Noah for one simple reason, because God keeps God's promises. This is a huge ray of hopeful sunlight in the darkness for us. Every one of us sinners who've been feeling the weight of this story for the last few minutes. God promised Adam and Eve that one day a male descendant of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. Therefore, God gave Noah faith, just like he gave faith to Adam and Eve and to Seth and to Enoch, because through that faith, through preserving the line of promise from Adam and Eve, through Noah, God was keeping his promise. If God had not saved anyone from the flood, then his promise to Adam and Eve would have failed. In other, let's see, in order for God to not save anyone, God would have to break his word. And God never breaks his word. But wait a second. God promised that an offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. In other words, God promised to save. But multiple times in the last chapter and this one, God promises that every living thing that he's made will die to pay for mankind's grievous sin. In other words, God has promised to judge. God keeps God's promises. We just said that. It's absolutely true. But how can God keep both of these promises? 
bring a serpent-crushing Savior and punish sinners for what they deserve. It's like these two promises are fighting each other. Well, it turns out God does keep both of those promises. God keeps his word to save and to judge. And to find out how, we have to keep reading the Bible. This question will follow us through the whole story of the Bible until God finally answers it in Jesus. Jesus, the very Son of God, came to earth and was born of the Virgin Mary so that he could solve our sin problem. He did that in two ways. First, by obeying God himself in our place. Then, when he'd lived a perfect life, obeying all of God's requirements and never sinning in his whole life, Jesus did the second thing to solve our sin problem. He suffered an excruciating death on the cross. That's where he took on himself the full-blown wrath of God towards sin, a whole flood worth. And when he'd done that perfectly and laid down his life to save us, He proved who he really was, and he proved his own innocence, and he defeated death forever by rising from the dead, and he is alive today. Because Jesus did that, everyone who has faith in him gets his perfect track record of obedience to God, and his sacrifice satisfies God's wrath toward them, and Through faith, the Spirit unites them to himself in powerful resurrection life. That is why Noah was saved. It's the exact same reason that we can be saved. Noah didn't know Jesus by name, but he trusted that God would find a way to save him from his sin. So that leaves us with just one last question. God saved Noah because of Jesus, and he did it to keep the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve. So here's the question. Why did he promise an offspring to Adam and Eve? Didn't God know how horrible humanity was going to get in just a couple generations? Yes, of course he knew that. If he knew that, And if he knew that he was going to be so grieved by their sin as to some way, in some incredible way, actually regret that he'd ever made them, if God had wanted at that moment to completely wipe humanity out because that's what they deserved, couldn't he have just not promised a Savior in the first place? Yes, of course he could have done that. God is God. God can do anything he wants. And he doesn't have to do anything that he doesn't want. God could have left us with no hope at all. So why didn't he? Why did he promise that the snake would not win? It's because that is who God is. God's promises are not something outside of him that can force his hand or tell him what to do. God's promises come from deep within himself. He makes them knowing what they will cost. 
And in his sovereignty and his wisdom and his love, he promises those things anyway. Bethlehem South Campus, this is who your God is. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is the very name of God that he gave to Moses a long time after Noah had lived his whole life and died. Did you hear it? In that name, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, a promise that he will save and who will by no means clear the guilty, a promise to judge. It's in God's very name to do both of those things. God kept God's promises, both to save and to judge, because on the cross, Jesus fulfilled them both. God keeps God's word by crushing his word. Jesus, the eternal word of God incarnate, his body broken and his blood poured out on the cross. Jesus, who lives again forever, keeps all of God's promises, and he will continue to do so forever. So what do we do with all of this? Let me talk to the kids now for just a minute. I really hope that you boys and girls have been listening in and understanding this story. But if you have, then maybe this story has made you feel a little scared and a little upset. It's a scary feeling to realize that when we sin, it's a sin against God on top of being a sin against our siblings or our parents or our friends. God does not like our sin. If you felt that feeling we were talking about a minute ago, that feeling that says, oh no, I've sinned against God, then it's a really good thing that you felt that feeling. The very best thing that you can do is talk to your parents about it and tell them that you're feeling that way. They love you, and they will know how to help you. And together, you can pray with them to Jesus right now, today, and believe in him and say no to your sin and ask Jesus to save you. And if you ask him to do that, he certainly will. Okay, that was for the kids. Now for the grown-ups. I want to tell you exactly the same thing. With one exception, your parents might not be here. But if they are, uh, you should talk to them about this. And you should tell them that you love them. <laughs> Actually, mom and dad, I love you guys. <laughs> but for the grown-ups, what I want you to hear is this. If you can hear me today, and you've never received Jesus Christ as the only cure for sin's sickness, the only way to come back to God, the only way to be his friend and not his enemy, if you've never known Jesus as your Savior and your King, 
please do today. Please do right now. It's free, and it will set you free. Please find a Christian to talk to. There's a number of them in this room. Any one of us would be thrilled to go with you to God's throne so that you can meet Jesus and be saved by him forever. And if you're listening and you are a Christian and you do already claim Jesus as your supreme Lord and your treasure, let me press on you now how important it is that you believe in him again and again for your whole life long. That's just one of the reasons that we're all here this morning. That's one of the reasons we're coming to the table in just a moment to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's because we need over and over again to come back and believe again this beautiful Savior and be freed from all the burdens of our sin. So let me pray for all of that right now. Oh, Holy Spirit, if you're willing, you can make hearts come alive. You can make the cords of sin and death break and burdens fall off all around this room in this very moment. I pray to you and I plead with you that not a single soul in this room would be lost. You, oh God, you who closed the door of Noah's ark, would you open the doors of every heart gathered here that the king of glory may come in. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.